9.30 supper. Oh, it's too tempting. I won't uh, Wouldn't be fair, would it now? Um, I hope you've got Ephesians um, somewhere near you, open. We're going to jump ahead from chapter 4 to jump, chapter 5. Before lunch, we were at 4, 1 to 16. And the next section, 4, 17 to 5, 14, if you take that as a section, it starts with darkness and ends with light. So verse 17 of chapter 4 says, don't live any longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. 5.14 talks about the light that makes everything visible. This is why it said, wake up, O sleeper. This is a direct word to us, isn't it, tonight? Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine his light upon you. So there's a move here from darkness to light, a call upon the Christian to leave the darkness for the light that shines from Jesus, or as chapter 4 verse 21 puts it, the truth that is in Jesus, who is the light. And of course light and darkness have their related behaviors. Those who are trusting in Christ are to walk as children of light, 5.18. You were once darkness, 5.8, sorry. But now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light, or walk literally as children of light. No longer as you once did in the darkness. And the larger context, as we saw earlier, uh, is from chapter 4, verse 1 onwards, which is that great command, and I suggested this will be a heading for the rest of the book, uh, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received, 4.1, or to walk worthy, literally, of the calling you have received. And that language of the walk, and many of us enjoyed a lovely walk this afternoon, didn't we? Uh, that language of the walk, which is a very common image, is picked up in 4.17, um, NIV has, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, literally walk as the Gentiles or the non-Jew does. Chapter 5, verse 2, live a life of love is literally walk in love. 5, 8, live as children of light is walk as children of light. And as we saw in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, this walk is a group activity. Alan and I were walking uh, along the path around the lake this afternoon and we met a group of you. You know who you are, who you are. Uh, thankfully, you didn't mug us. We were a little worried at one moment uh, that you might set upon us. But you very kindly walked by and even smiled, I think, one or two of you, which was very gracious of you. Um, but you had obviously decided that you were going to walk together. I mean, you don't see a group walking together unless there's a decision. Hey, why don't we go for a walk? Should we go for a walk? Um, it's a group activity, a walk. At least if you're going to be a unified group. 
And so here in this imagery of chapter 4, 1 to 16, there's, there's this idea of a group activity, a unified group, the church, modelled on the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, directed by the teaching of the Word of God and expressed in a growing maturity of loving service. And that group walk that maybe you went on this afternoon, or was it just ice cream you went for, um, nonetheless takes a decision. Shall I go or shan't I with this group? And then if you are on a walk, you, you have these regular decision, moments of decision, don't you? Do we go left? Do we go right? Do we go straight on? Do we go back the way we came? And the group walk, which is worthy of the call to follow Christ, also involves decision after decision along the way. So, for example, chapter 4, 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. And verse 24, to put on the new self. So, just as you may possibly have brought a change of clothing if you're staying over this weekend, so that, you know, tomorrow morning when you come down to breakfast, pachong! The new outfit, or at least a different one from the one you're wearing today. You, you put off your old clothes. Perhaps you can smell that it's time that they got changed. And you put on new clothes. Well, as a Christian, we put off the old clothes and we put on the new clothes. The old clothes of deceit and anger and dishonesty and laziness. Unhelpful comments, slander, bitterness, impurity, greed. All of these things we have to put off. And we put on the new clothing provided through the Holy Spirit. Beautiful items of clothing. Things like truthfulness and kindness, generosity, purity. They all have to be put on. Or if you want a a single word to describe all these things, it's godliness, isn't it? Chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. It's a tall order, but that's the walk that is worthy of the calling that you've received as a Christian, if that's what you are. It means living a life of love and forgiveness of others, modelled on the sacrificial love of Christ. It's always at the heart of the Christian life, isn't it? Chapter 5, verse 2. Live a life of love or walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. To God. And in the Christian life, in the Christian walk, there is always to be the aroma of sacrifice. I remember a friend of mine who worked in the uh, Italian student movement, uh, GBU, I think it's called, is it there? Um, for a number of years. And she, she was telling me that she would say to um, students who were considering following Christ for the first time, what, what will you, if you follow Christ, what will you have to change in your life? Perhaps even a, a better answer, a question would be, what are you going to have to sacrifice in your life? Because if there's no sacrifice, it, how can it be Christian? How can it be following the Christ who gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice <coughs> to God? So there's the the movement, the walking out of darkness into the light. 
That's absolutely critical if we're going to live a life worthy of the calling, if we're going to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling that we've received as Christians. And then the next section, from 5.15 through to 6.9, calls on the Christian to abandon folly for the wisdom given by the Spirit of God. And we're going to be looking at a part of this, uh, chapters, chapter 5, verse 15 to 21, a nice short section, uh, which I've entitled, Walk Wise in the Spirit's Power. Forgive the lack of proper adverb, those of you who are particular about your grammar. Walk wise in the Spirit's Power. And this little section we're looking at, 515 to 21, is, if you like, a bridge. It it climaxes the call that we've been looking at to walk worthy of of the calling we've received, and it's preparing for the next major section of the book, which spells out what the Spirit's power looks like in certain key relationships, in marriage, in, in family, and in the workplace. So let's read 515 to 21. Be very careful, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Well, what does that mean? Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father, your great Son, our Lord Jesus, said that we could call you Father and that we could ask you to give us more of your Holy Spirit. And we want to do that together tonight and ask that the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words would come among us and be our teacher. And we pray this in the name of and for the sake of of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? What does it mean? Are you? Am I? Do you need to be? Well, chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians are working out the ethical implications of chapters 1 to 3, where the truth of God's eternal plan is revealed to bring everything under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that together. I hope we haven't missed that, and I hope we'll never forget that. But how should we live in the light of this revelation? Well, we should walk in the light of Christ, away from the darkness. We should walk wise by the Spirit's power. Two simple points this evening. 
To walk wise is the first thing, verse 15 to 17. That's what we need to do if we're going to walk worthy of the calling we've received, to fit in with God's ultimate purposes, to bring everything under Christ. Be very careful, 515. That's the the reference. How you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Now, the word opportunity is, is, is a word that sometimes is translated time or timely. It's, um, it's a kairos, is, is the Greek, if you're interested in that kind of thing, rather than chronos, which is the word from which we get chronological, or chronic, for that matter, meaning over time. This is a moment in time. This is an opportunity. And we are literally to buy it up. That's what the original says. What the NIV translates as make the most of every opportunity. So the Christian life should, in a sense, be opportunistic. We're always looking for an opportunity. Like some people are always looking for a bargain. Hands up. You're always looking for a bargain. I can't resist looking for bargains. Um... I cannot bring myself to pay the full price for a pair of shoes. I haven't for many years. You're probably saying, well, I'm, yeah, I can tell. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can even testify that this very last week, I found a new pair of slippers at half price, yes, online, and I've ordered them. Tuesday or Wednesday, I hope they'll arrive. Um, it's a Christmas present to myself from me. Um, <laughs> Christians should always be on the lookout for an opportunity to explain God's plan for the world, ultimately to bring everything under Christ's single rule. Are you always looking out for opportunities? Someone was telling me recently about a conversation that just simply opened up out of the blue with a work colleague to talk about the good news. And this person was also telling me, and I was so impressed by this, I thought, that is called buying up opportunities. They, they made a point of going over to that person uh, a couple of days later with a suitable book to offer them as a, as a follow-up to the conversation. I thought, that's, that's so wise, isn't it? You don't just have the conversation. Whoa, where did that come from? Amazing, they actually asked me about what I did at the weekend and when I mentioned I'd been at the castle and they said, what's that? And, and I told them, they didn't go, oh, weirdo, two heads, help, get me out of here. They said, oh, that's very interesting. And we had this conversation. Now, what are you going to do with that? Because suddenly someone walks in and you have to change the conversation or whatever it may be. Yeah. Now, you had an opportunity. How are you going to make the most of that opportunity? How are you going to buy it up? Make it like a a bargain that you can't help boasting about, like I just did about my slippers. Um, Well, you need the Lord's wisdom, don't you? You need to walk wise. You need to think, now, um, where do we go in that minute and a half of conversation? What kind of booklet or book or website link or whatever it might be or app or something that I can... Buy up that opportunity with and make the most of it. Do you remember to pray for, maybe if you're going on a social occasion, or maybe you're thinking, I really don't want to go for this drink after work. 
with, you know, everybody's going, it's Christmas, and you're coming out, you know, with everybody after work for a drink, aren't you? We're all going. And you're thinking, oh, do I have to? Or maybe you're thinking, that's great. Well, it doesn't matter. Um, Whichever way it is, whether you're enthusiastic or you're wishing you could say no, but realize you, you shouldn't, you really need to go to this at least for a time, pray that God would just give you one good conversation with somebody. Why don't you decide to make the most of every opportunity? Seize it. Because, verse 18, the days, sorry, verse 16, the days are evil. Meaning what? Well, not easy. Looking at how the verse goes on, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Maybe the idea is something like this, that the days are evil in that we have an enemy, the evil one, who we'll learn a little more about next chapter, tomorrow morning, who has a a firm grip on the world. He's the prince of this world. And he's marching it down the road of folly, not wisdom. But we know where the world actually is heading. We know it's heading, ultimately, to be under Christ. No escape from that future for the world. So we are not foolish because we understand what the Lord's will is for our world. His will is that everything will come under the authority of Christ. That's how the phrase is used earlier in the book, chapter 1, 9, 10, and 11. The fool doesn't know how to live in this world. We do. We understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, of course, the will of the Lord. What is the will of the Lord? Well, that's a phrase that's often uh, taken by Christians to talk about personal guidance, isn't it? I'm trying to discern what the will of the Lord is for my life. Now, there's nothing wrong with that at one level, except if we say, well, how does the Bible, how does God use that language as he inspires the Bible writers? The answer is that it's, it's much more than personal guidance. Almost... Without exception, it's used to refer to God's gracious saving plan and the formation of a people who are like Christ and ready for the last day. There are exceptions, but that's the norm. So God's will, in Bible terms, is far more about godliness than guidance. It's about living in the light of God's grand design for our world. So let me just show you back in chapter 1, 9, 10, and 11, how it's used. You know this, we saw this, but let me remind you. End of chapter 1, or end of verse 11 of chapter 1. We also were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with what? The purpose of his will. There's his will. And what have we just been told his will is? This revelation, verse 9, of God's will, according to whose good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. What has been revealed about God's will? Verse 10, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's God's will. And we understand, back to chapter 5, verse 17, we understand what the will of the Lord is. Peter O'Brien, in his, his excellent commentary, writes this. 
The contemporary preoccupation with personal guidance is wrongly directed if it is not understood, first of all, within the framework of God's gracious saving plans for his world. Personalized, I'll say that again, personalized concerns about guidance may in fact be evidence of a folly which stands in contrast to and needs to be corrected by a true understanding of the Lord's will which is primarily and foremost about his great saving plans for the world. It's not about me and my plans. It's about God and his plans. It's a much bigger thing. So walking wise means grasping what God's great plans for our world are and then making the most of every opportunity to fit our conversations, our lifestyle, our decisions, big and small, into that framework. How should we do it? And here's the second point. We do it in the Spirit's power. Walk wise, verses 15 to 17, in the Spirit's power, secondly, verses 18 to 21. Now, it's sadly common, isn't it, in in our culture for people to, to turn to drink when they cannot face life or its pressures, or when they're trying to muster courage, Dutch courage it's sometimes called. Poor old Dutch, don't know why they get get that, but there you go. Uh, Or when people are trying to be one of the lads or one of the girls. Has to be drink. Someone was telling me they were explaining, wasn't it you, Daniel, talking about uh, trying to explain to friends in Dublin that he he was coming on a house party. And they thought, a house party? Whoa, Christians on a house party, eh? Oh. Um, No, 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 it's not like that. Talk to Daniel afterwards if you didn't understand that last reference. Um, now that is the way of the world, and it leads to debauchery, to dissipation, to loss of control and wasted lives. Uh, listening to a debate on the radio this week about uh, the new, isn't it Scotland, who just dropped their drink driving limit. And there's this debate, isn't there, about, well, shouldn't, I think the rest... Have you got a better one here than Scotland? Are you following Scotland in the north? I don't know. What, what's it like in the south? I wouldn't know. But, uh, it's lower again, is it? So it's, it's Britain that's the... Or England and Wales that's the worst in Europe, apart from Malta, apparently. Malta are there with us. Um, I like Malta. Um, but there was, a, there was a debate about whether you should actually have a zero tolerance. Um, just because it's better to say, well, if you've got any alcohol, you shouldn't be driving. And certainly, um, my wife tells me, she's medical, that um, you know, it's, it's all very well getting someone else to drive you uh, home on the evening. But if you've had a lot to drink and then you do the school run in the morning, you've still got quite a lot of alcohol in your blood. And your judgment is not quite what it should be. So, so we live in a culture where there's, this, where there's a, a sort of tacit acknowledgement that drink is not good for you. It doesn't do you any favours, really, in terms of self-control. And the way of the Christian is not to be drunk on wine. Instead, verse 18, it is to be filled with the Spirit. 
I don't think it's helpful to, to talk about being inebriated by the Spirit, as sometimes you hear people talking of, because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, amongst other things. So probably that's not the best contrast. Though I quite like the phrase to be under the influence. Um, it's a phrase we, we're familiar with, isn't it? Someone, oh, they're under the influence. Well, we should be people under the influence, but not the depressant of alcohol, but the stimulant of the Holy Spirit. He should be the one under whose influence we appear to be and are. But let me clarify. Let us clarify what this phrase being filled by or filled with the Spirit is. I think there are three things that need to be made clear. This is the first thing I think that needs to be made clear. That the Spirit is married to the Word or to put it the other way around, negatively, is not to be divorced from the word. Now, let me show you a fascinating parallel. If you've ever looked and read through and thought about Ephesians and Colossians together, you'll realize that in the days before the word processor, the Apostle Paul had a good memory and wrote some pretty similar stuff down. And the letters may well have come uh, out of the same period of Paul's life, when he's first imprisoned in Rome. And just have a look over. Keep a finger in Ephesians 5 and and turn over to Colossians 3.16. And you'll instantly see in your Bible that, that what follows is virtually identical with what follows where we are in Ephesians 5. You've got the stuff about wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves. Slight variation, but pretty similar. Colossians 3, yeah, middle of Colossians 3, or end of Colossians 3. If you find having, I can hear people still trying to, uh, let me pass on the one thing I learned in five years of secondary religious education. Uh, we had a, a, a teacher called Mr. Rust. Is that a great name? And he used to wear a rust-colored sports jacket, but there you go. Uh, and the one thing I learned from him in five years was the order of the Pauline epistles follow the order of the English vowels. A, E, I, O. You have to cheat. U. Thessalonians. As long as you pronounce Thessalonians, Thessalonians, it works. Okay? A, Galatians. E, Ephesians. I, Philippians. O, Colossians. U for Thessalonians. (laughs) You laugh. But from now on, you will never be able to forget that. Ha, ha. And you will always be able to remember the order of the Pauline epistles. So there you go. That's just thrown in for nothing. Um, Back to, oh, you can pronounce it correctly. I was going to say Colossians, but it's Colossians, isn't it? Colossians chapter 3. Have a look closely at verse 16. Where Paul writes in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ, which was by then a, a word passed on, by word of mouth and through writing. Let it dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, etc. Giving thanks. Turn back to Ephesians 5 and read from the end of verse 18. 
Instead, be, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart in the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wives, husbands, children. Do you see the parallel? And what is the exact parallel to the phrase, be filled with the Spirit? This is a non-rhetorical question to make sure that you're awake and with me. The door is closing. (laughs) The door is nearly closed. The door is... Closed. What is the parallel? What's the phrase? Thank you very much, John. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ, the filling of the Spirit. I want to suggest to you that that tells us something about Paul's theology. That in his mind, the influence of the Spirit and the influence and the power of the word are together. You can interchange them. You can equally talk about the Spirit's influence or the Word's influence. And if you think about who it is that inspires the writer of the words, the recorders of the words of Christ, why, it is the Spirit himself, as Jesus promised. So the Holy Spirit and the Holy Bible work in partnership. How do we know what God's will is? By reading the Bible. How do we know what the work of the Spirit is like? By reading the Bible. Now, I don't, know, I don't know what kind of church you go to, but sometimes I've had said of a church that I've been involved in, ah, you've, someone else says, ah, the church I go to, not the one I'm to, that I'm at, but their church, they say, we are a spirit-filled church. You just have Bible, Bible, Bible. And of course, when you understand what we've just looked at, you realize this is a false dichotomy. It's not an either-or. The spirit is married to the word. They go together. So that's the first thing we need to get clear as we try to understand what this phrase being filled with the Spirit means. Second thing we need to get clear is this, and for me this was a real revelation in, in trying to understand this, is I, I did the, the thing which I, I tell others to be doing all the time, which is to look at the context, and not just the immediate context. I mean, nine out of time, nine, ten Nine times out of ten, if you want to understand a verse and you think, I don't know what this verse means, you either need to look at the verse before or the verse afterwards, and there's the answer. Uh, But sometimes you need to look a a little more widely afield, and in particular to look at the the context of the book. Now, I know there's the whole Bible context as well. That's important. But the book context is really helpful, like we've just seen in trying to understand what the will of the Lord is. It's to do with God's plan for the end of time and Christ and his headship. It's not just about my life and personal guidance. So when we ask, what does the filling of the Spirit mean? We realize that this isn't the first time this phrase has been used by Paul in the book of Ephesians. So the second thing we need to get clear is that the Spirit fills with the fullness of God and Christ If you're writing notes, I'll say that again. The Spirit fills with the fullness of God and Christ. 
Or to put it another way, the child of the marriage of the word and the spirit, the, the word and the spirit are married, if we can continue that analogy for a moment, the child of the marriage of word and spirit is the likeness of God in Christ. So when the word and the spirit come together, what do they produce in our lives? Answer the likeness of God in Christ. Now I'm going to try and demonstrate that to you. Both ESV and NIV, which I suspect are the most common translations that we have in the room. I may be wrong, but my guess is they are. They both have, be filled with the Spirit, to translate the end of verse 18. And they make it sound, don't they, like the Spirit is the content of the filling. You know, be, be filled with, you want your mug to be filled with hot chocolate, maybe later. Or, is that hot chocolate later? I don't know. No, sadly, sorry. <laughs> False prospectus, I beg your pardon. Um, whatever you're going to drink later. But it makes it sound like that's what you're going to have your, whatever it is, filled with, your life filled with, the spirit. But actually this phrase, I think it's, it's better translated and literally reads, be filled by the spirit. In other words, the spirit is the one doing the filling rather than being the filling And twice already in this book, the exact phrase has been used. So chapter 2, verse 22, and chapter 3, verse 5. Just look back and see how they're translated. Two twenty-two, last verse of of chapter 2. And in him, in Christ, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 5. I think this is clearer still. Talking about what has not been made known, the revelation of Christ, not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. By the Spirit. The Spirit is the agent who affects the revelation, who breaks the news, who does the action. He's the one who builds, he, he reveals, and... Surely, therefore, the natural way to understand it in 5.18 is he fills. He's the agent who does the filling. But then, of course, that begs the question of, okay, if he's doing the filling, what does he fill with? What's he putting in? What's the content poured into the Christian's life that brings about the fullness that is then talked about? Well, again, if we think about the concept of fullness and filling, this is something that we've had a lot of in Ephesians. Do you remember that extraordinary phrase at the end of chapter 1? Last verse. The church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ fills everything. So the church as Christ's body shares Christ's fullness. It's full of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 19, the prayer of Paul is that the Christian is filled with what? Filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That the Christian be filled up with God, so to speak, as they know the love of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 10. The ascended Christ is the one who fills or will fill the whole universe. Chapter 4, verse 13. 
The goal to which the body of Christ, the church, is moving is maturity. And how do you find maturity? What is maturity? It's attaining, verse 13, to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And what you get if you put this all together? Well, what you get is this, that the Spirit of God fills the Christian and the church with the fullness of God and Christ. So I think it's better to understand 5.18, this command to be filled with the Spirit or be filled by the Spirit, better, I think, translated, in terms of the Spirit mediating the fullness of God and Christ to believers, pouring in the reality of God, pouring in Christ, so to speak, into the life of the believer. So we are filled with Christ and God by the Spirit's action. This is a a deeply and richly Trinitarian understanding, isn't it? The cooperation of the Spirit to bring into our lives the reality, indeed the fullness of God and Christ. Well, maybe that's raised questions in your mind. There's a question box here for tomorrow. Maybe you're thinking, but doesn't that raise tensions in, in, you know, how does this work? God does the filling by means of the Holy Spirit. So he does the filling, and yet it's a command, a passive command to allow yourself to be filled. Be filled. It's a command to be obeyed. Isn't isn't that what a command is? It's something you're supposed to obey. Yes, it's a command to be obeyed. But yet it's God who does it. It's a present continuous command. Go on being filled. Go on being receptive to the Spirit of God, transforming you into the likeness of God. Even those of tender age like yourselves have probably heard of John Stott. Nespa. Uh, John Stott was a linguist. I don't know if you knew that. He got a first in modern languages at Cambridge. His father wanted him to be a diplomat. His father was a distinguished surgeon in Harley Street. Well, he's a linguist. He's very interested. If you read his commentaries, you'll know he's very interested in language, uh, which I love. I don't know about you. And his comments on be filled are as follows, and I think they're, they're just beautifully clear. He says it is a, an imperative. That's his accent, by the way. It's an imperative. That is to say it's obligatory, not optional. You must do this if you're a Christian. It's plural. It's for all Christians in community. It's not for a spiritual elite, for the spirit-filled upon high table. The elite core. No. It's imperative, it's plural, it's passive. It's not a technique, but a turning to the Spirit. Holy Spirit, will you please fill me with Christ and with God? And it's present. It's a continuous, not a once-for-all thing. Yeah, yeah, I got that. I went to At the Castle we had a great weekend, and I got the filling of the Spirit. And now I am full of the Spirit. No. It's something for every day, and in a sense for every moment of every day, like the command to love one another. You know, well, I did that on Tuesday. Can I have the rest of the week off, please? Um, so for, for the defeated Christian who's struggling with the Christian life, the message is let the Spirit fill you with his fruit. 
Let God do it. Let the Spirit of God work in you. If you're a defeated Christian here this weekend, deeply ashamed of how you're doing in your Christian life, hoping no one's going to ask you too many probing questions about how you're doing since the last at the castle, then what encouragement to let the Spirit fill you with his fruit, which is the likeness of Christ, which is Christ. And there's a message for the complacent Christian. Maybe that's you. And the message is this. You have not yet arrived. Don't take your foot off the pedal. Keep on being filled. Keep on asking the Holy Spirit and God to send the Holy Spirit to do this job of filling you with the likeness of Christ more and more and more. So that's the second thing we really need to get clear about what this fullness of the Holy Spirit means. It, it means being filled by the Spirit with the fullness of God and Christ. The child of the marriage of word and spirit, which was the first thing we needed to note, they are married, is the likeness of God in Christ. And Christ, of course, is what God looks like, so to speak, in human form. And then the third thing to note about the filling of the Spirit, and this is the last, we're heading towards the end, is to notice what the marks are of the, of the Spirit's filling with Christ and God. What, so, okay, we've got that clear. It's, it's not separate uh, from the Word of God. The Word of God and the Spirit work together. And the Spirit of God is filling us with Christ and with God. So what do we look like then? We look like Christ, okay, but is it, what does Paul actually say that a Christ-like life looks like in this context. How does he then go on? He talks about singing, thanksgiving, and submission. Now, I don't know if you like singing. Um, I hope you do. It's a natural human thing to sing, isn't it? All over the world, every culture, every period of history, there's been singing. Now, we may have a different opinions about whether we like the singing of that particular culture. We might think, well, I don't think much of their singing. Well, they probably don't think much of ours. Um, but there it is. This is all one continuing sentence. It's not broken up into little sentences like the English translations. It just keeps flowing in the Greek. Being filled with the Spirit. The, the command is to be filled with the Spirit. And then it's a lots of, if you're into grammar, it's lots of participles. Speaking to one another, singing and making music. But you're speaking to one another as with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's why I just put it all together under singing. Because it's really about addressing one another in song. The reference certainly includes gathered worship in church. But it also talks in verse 19 about making music in your heart to the Lord. How do you make music in your heart? Well, I think probably it means you don't sing aloud. Uh, you're just singing away inside, well, we, we might say inside our head. Do you not find yourself doing that? If you're a Christian, aren't there certain songs that get under your skin and you just love them? And you just find yourself singing away and you, you suddenly think, oh, I mustn't sing aloud, I'm in a public place. You know? I actually found myself the other Sunday evening, I was walking home from church and uh, I so loved one of the songs, I was singing it and I suddenly realized I was singing it aloud and someone came around the corner you know, and you just feel so stupid at one level. Um, and yet at another level I thought, oh, I'm not ashamed. I mean I was, but you know, I shouldn't be. 
I should rephrase that. I shouldn't be ashamed. Because um, I'm a Christian, and Christians sing. If you go to any great sporting event, those of you, we, some of us were discussing rugby earlier and the various merits and demerits of certain rugby teams. And um, what happens if you go to, um, to Ravenhill, isn't it, or the Aviva Stadium or Twickenham, just down two miles down the road from where we live now? Uh, singing. That's what people do when they're there. They sing. How much more should Christians? Indeed, it's one of the marks of the Holy Spirit's impact on a Christian is to put a song in their hearts all day, not just on Sundays. Yes, there is a horizontal aspect, addressing one another. We mustn't forget that. And I hope in our churches we're singing songs where we are conscious that we're, we're actually singing to one another. But we're also vertically singing to the Lord. Speaking to one another in song, verse 19, beginning. Um, and then... Well, certainly in our hearts, to the Lord. Now, I know there are debates about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I'm not going to spend time on that. It just seems to me the point is that our songs should be scriptural, so that if we remember Colossians 3.16, the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly. Because this is the Spirit filling us, bringing Christ into our lives. Well, the word of Christ needs to dwell in us richly, so our songs should be full of scriptural content. Not necessarily the exact language of the A.V., we can modernize things in their language, but the content is scriptural, it's biblical. Phrases from all over the scriptures. I think enough said on that. Singing, thanksgiving. Are we thankful? Every day are we known as people in our place of work or in our home as people who are just full of gratitude? I visited last week, a couple of weeks ago, a guy in our church who's just, just turned 97. A wonderful man. And he has now reached the point where he was unable actually verbally to communicate with me. But every other time I have visited in the two and a half years that I've been in the church, when I say to him, Francis, how are you today? Do you know what? His, his, I know exactly what he's going to say. And I know what he'd have said last week had he been able uh, to articulate things. I have so much to be thankful to the Lord for. Now, he's crumbling before your eyes, physically. But he is a man who has learned to give thanks to the Lord. He is a man who, I would suggest to you, is being filled by the Spirit. Well, how about us? Now, we may not be thankful for everything in the sense of things bad happen, but we are thankful in everything. Because in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know why these things are happening. It's for our good. And it's funny, isn't it, how some of us who, who have the most in this world's terms are the worst complainers. And some who have the least in this world's terms are the most grateful. He came home to me in the early 1980s, in the days when the Iron Curtain was still up, um, visiting Romania and visiting the poorest pastor I've ever visited in my life. And that pastor and his wife gave me and the two other guys visiting with me, they gave us each three gifts. And I was just, they weren't particularly valuable things, but it was the thought that counted. 
And there were three of them. And I valued those. <clears throat> One of them was just a coaster, um, sort of straw with a bit of cardboard plastered on top. But I kept that for as long as it stayed together. For years and years and years, because it reminded me of Pastor Veresh and his extraordinary thankfulness for what God had given him and his generosity that went with it. Singing, thanksgiving, submission to one another. Surprising result of the Spirit's work, isn't it? But if you read the original, it keeps going. Uh, Be filled is the command by the Spirit, speaking and singing, giving thanks, submitting to one another. It's a fruit of the Spirit's filling. And if only we had time to look at it, but we don't. But I just want to flag that bit. When you're next reading Ephesians 5, remember this, that the submission, which is then worked out in the marriage, in the family with children and parents, and in the slave-master relationship, that this is all a fruit of the fullness or the filling by the Spirit. So when the Spirit fills us with Christ, it works out in our everyday relationships. If we're married in marriage, we will have parents, because here we are, we're all children, and God may give us children in due course. And most of us are in a place of work where we have a master, if we're not the boss. And so it all applies to us. And it's all under the rubric, under the heading of be filled by the Spirit with God and Christ in your lives. That you're submitting appropriately within those relationships is Christ-like. So to summarize, if we are to walk worthy of the high calling we have received, we will need to walk wise. And the only way we'll be able to do that will be in the Spirit's power. Let's pray. Father, as we come towards the end of this day, we want to thank you for all your generosity towards us in so many ways. Thank you that we live in a country where we're free to have a conference like this. Thank you that our lives and our workplaces are not going to be adversely affected simply because we came on a weekend like this, as so many of our brothers and sisters around the world would find. Thank you that we can sing together. Thank you that we could walk together this afternoon, many of us. But Lord, we want our walk to be a walk of wisdom as Christians. And we pray that you would enable us to do it through a constant and continual begging of yourself that you would fill us by your Spirit with Christ and God, that our lives might be more and more godly, more and more Christ-like, that we may walk worthy of the calling that we've received to follow the Christ who is ascended and is returning and is one day going to be head over everything.
we pray in his wonderful name. Amen.